Welcome to the Vacation Effect Podcast, where we discuss time and lifestyle hacks for the busy entrepreneur, helping you grow your business even faster by working less and having a lot more fun. Now, here's your host, Denise Gosnell. Welcome to today's episode of the Vacation Effect Podcast. This is your host, Denise Gosnell, and today I'm super excited to have Roland Frazier as a guest on the show. Roland is the co-founder or principal of three current Inc. Magazine fastest-growing companies, and he's also founded, scaled, or sold 24 different seven- to nine-figure businesses in a variety of industries. Roland practiced business, tax, and securities law for over 12 years, and he's now an active investor who drives growth and scale in his portfolio companies. Roland is currently focused on growing digitalmarketer.com, rivalbrands.com, and platter.com, while advising over 150 other companies on customer acquisition, activation, referral, retention, and revenue strategies. I'm really excited you can join us today, Roland. Hey, thank you for having me, Denise. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, as you guys can see, Roland has a really incredible background, and that's why I wanted to chat with him today. Before I have him jump into some of his great time, business, and lifestyle hacks, I wanted to quickly set the stage for how I met Roland, because I think that'll help you guys understand what a rock star we have with us today. So I actually met Roland, I think it was what, about 10 years ago when we were both War Room members in the original, you know, War Room group that we were both in at the time? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I may have met you right before that when you were representing, I think it was Jeff Walker and he did his, like his first product launch or second, because I went to one of those events. And I remember that you were the attorney that was helping him with all of that stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. So yeah, so we met in a couple different contexts. But so there I am at this War Room Mastermind. And War Room is a mastermind group that Roland is now a partner in. He's one of the owners of. But back in this time, it was owned by Ryan Dice and Perry Belcher. And it's a CEO mastermind. Entrepreneurs can join. It's like $25,000 a year to be a member and it's, you know, a group of people that get together and help each other. And so there I am in the room and Roland, and this was when it was only like 25, 30 people in the room. And Roland was this guy in the corner that always had the smartest answers. And we're all like, man, that dude's freaking brilliant. So Ryan Dice and Perry Belcher recognized that. And they brought Roland in as a partner in War Room and many of their other companies. But I think I remember telling you, Roland, like, dude, I, I wish I could like record everything that comes out of your mouth. You're just incredibly brilliant. So it's been Thank great getting to know you over the years. Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So before we jump into some of your favorite hacks, I would love to have you tell us a little bit more about your backstory. I mean, you weren't always a millionaire entrepreneur and investor with such an incredible lifestyle that you have today, right? I mean, you've gone through a lot of challenges from your childhood to where you are now. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So yeah, I, I grew up and my father, he worked for the Internal Revenue Service and then eventually became a CPA and tax attorney and practiced on his own. And so I had the benefit of meeting lots of people because he was a tax attorney. He had lots of entrepreneurial clients. And it was just always fascinating to me all the different ways that they made money and that they seemed to have this great lifestyle where they didn't go to a job, they didn't work nine to five, they, they had control of their lives and, and could kind of set their own schedules. And I was like, that's really cool. I, I want to do that. So I really got the entrepreneurial bug from that. And as I was growing up, I happened to come across a book by a guy named Robert Allen called Nothing Down Real Estate. And I thought it was just amazing. So 
I got my real estate license when I was 18 and started doing the normal thing that you do and looking at cold calls and that kind of stuff. And then it occurred to me that if I could find people who had lots of listings and continued to generate lots of listings, that that would be a lot easier to work with than having to go out and find new clients that only sold a house every seven to nine years. And so I decided that the easy way to do that would be to go to developers. And so I managed to connect with several developers who had subdivisions and were developing properties and were real estate investors and things like that. And that gave me the opportunity to get in with them. And I had multiple listings in the mix of there. I, I did my first no money down real estate deal and uh, was just absolutely amazed that somebody would sign their property over to you without you having to pay any money. They'd still be on the debt and then you would be able to sell the house and, and make money as long as you paid off the debt. And I was wondering, does that work with companies too? And it turns out it did. And so over the years, I just really enjoyed playing in the space of buying and selling property, buying and selling companies while I got my law degree, my accounting degree. And I then opened up a law practice in San Diego and basically grew that over 13 years that I practiced to be one of the top 50 firms in San Diego. And during that time was still doing those deals. And eventually it just, it just seemed like that really the opportunity was doing that kind of stuff. And along the way, seeing kind of how the internet was coming and that that really seemed to me to be the biggest opportunity, I was looking to get involved in that and learn more about the people who were good at marketing and doing SEO and all that. And then about that time, I saw that there was uh, one of the guys that I followed, Ryan Dice, hooked up with somebody he called Mr. X, and they did a product called Wholesale Traffic System. And I was like, ah, oh, this Mr. X guy is pretty smart. And it turns out Mr. X was a guy named Perry Belcher who was doing all kinds of cool stuff with AdWords. And he was Ryan's partner. And they had just started, I think that was actually pre-digital marketer. But shortly after that, they started Digital Marketer. And I followed them along with Jeff Johnson and Jeff Walker and a few other people. And I was like, these, these are the people who seem to really be doing this stuff and actually not just selling stuff that worked five years ago, but doing stuff. So when Dyson Belcher did their first event, they announced a thing called Traffic and Conversion Summit. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go to that. And so I flew to Austin and went to it and uh, was just blown away. And there were people walking around with little black badges that had, or little badges that had black ribbons on it that said War Room. And I asked them, I said, what's this War Room thing? And they said, well, this is a mastermind where we get together and we share all our best marketing stuff. And I, I was like, well, that's interesting. Maybe I should join that. And then I looked at the dates and I was like, ah, I don't know if I can make all that. I'm pretty busy. And so I didn't join. And I was really mad at myself for about 10 months of the year waiting for the next Traffic and Conversion Summit because I was like, on it. I should have done that. There's so many smart people in there. I know I could learn a lot. Plus, I want to get to know Ryan and Perry. So the next year, they have traffic and conversion, the second one. And I go and I walk up to the desk, the registration desk, and I said, yeah, I'd like to join the Warren Mastermind. They said, oh, you can't. And I said, what, what you mean you sold out? I can't get in? And they were, no, no, we hadn't printed the forms yet. I was like, oh, okay. All right, great. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So, um, and now you own the thing. Yeah. So did you, did you ever dream that was going to be the case? No, not at all. So that's, what's so funny is so, so then basically I joined and I decided that I needed to get to, to know these guys better. And the only way to do that was to stand out. So how could I stand out? And they had a thing called wicked smart. And that's where you submit something that is proven to work already 
that um, has achieved a really great result. And then the group votes on it. And there were only 20 people in Warham at the time. And um, yeah, that was when I met you was during that era. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, everybody would vote on it and then you'd win. And I was like, well, I've got to win Wicked Smart. And I basically just set about solving a couple of problems that were out there. I ended up winning, I think I ended up winning seven or eight times before I ended up becoming a member and they wouldn't let me play anymore. But what was really cool was that like two takeaways to me from this are one, if you want to do business with somebody, look and see if they've got a paid channel of access so that you can pay them to be a very high level client and get their attention in a, in a way that they've allowed for, as opposed to just trying to kind of beg your way in or bum rush them at the end of a speech or something like that. And that, that was what I had done. I've done it throughout my life is anytime I want to get somebody's attention to, to do a deal or be a mentor, I look and I say, what's their paid channel of access? And so for Ryan and Perry, it was this thing called War Room. And so that was the main reason that I joined was to get to know them because I wanted to take their marketing savvy and apply it to my business relationships and the investment banking things I knew to, to really go in and buy companies and add great marketing, build up the value and sell them. So the takeaway being, if you want to get to know somebody, anybody, almost everybody has a paid channel of access. Take advantage of it, do that. And then you approach as a customer they want to serve, not as you know, kind of somebody that's pestering them that, that uh, they get all the time. The second thing would be that once, once you've got that, figure out how to stand out. And my, my standout was by giving to the group and through the Wicked Smart. And that ultimately got me connected not with Ryan and Perry because after I won that, he came over and said, hey, man, you know, let's have dinner and I, wanna, I want you to sit next to me and let's talk. And so we got to be friends. And ultimately, I was I worked I was in Warren for about three years, and then the uh, opportunity came to to be a partner because I was just helping them. I didn't expect anything in return. I had legal and business and accounting and finance and all these other skills that a lot of folks in that industry don't. And so um, I would just advise them. And uh, they had a CEO with a deal that ultimately didn't work out. The CEO had the option to acquire up to a third of the company. And so when things didn't work out with that CEO, Ryan and Perry approached me and said, you know, would you like to, to buy in and become a partner? And I said, absolutely. So I became a partner about three years after. And then we looked and said, you know, okay, well, what parts of the company should everybody take care of? And Perry is really good at e-commerce. And so he took that, that part and ran with it. And Ryan was the face of Digital Marketer. So he and Richard Lindner took that part of it. And then I grew Traffic and Conversion Summit. I built the sponsorship program, brought in some really great people, really helped focus on bringing that to a world-class event, which we were able to, to exit to Clarion, which is a Blackstone subsidiary last year. And now it's, grow, it's going global. So that's been really fun to watch. And then War Room, same thing. I took over War Room and we grew. Now we have 200 members and growing, and we've just opened another one in the EU and the UK. We have another one that is in the real estate space for real estate agents, and we have another one that is in the real estate investor space. So it's been fun taking those businesses and, and growing them. So probably way more information longer than you wanted to hear, but that's the story. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably thinking, you know, wow, that's, that's great, Roland, but I'm not a genius like you are. And that all sounds like more than what I can do. So I wanted to break this down a little bit, if you don't mind. A couple of things I heard you say that were 
really important was you were talking about how when you were 18 and you were, got your real estate license and that, you know, you looked for that point of leverage. You went to the developers where they had all kinds of listings that, that they were handling. Instead of you doing the listings one by one, one person at a time, there seemed to be a pattern of you looking for where the leverage point was. You then did that again with the syndication. You then looked for the leverage point with how can I get someone's attention? And you made the tip about, you know, if you want to do business with someone, finding a paid way to get their attention. That is so true. That's exactly what I've done and growing all of my companies over the years, right? That's how I've gotten to know you and your partners and so many of the clients that I have today is through that very way. I joined their group as a client first. They got to know me, they loved me, and then they turned around and hired me as well. So leverage seems like a big pattern there. Would would you say that's the biggest pattern or is there another pattern there that I missed in what you were talking about? Yes, it it absolutely is. I always look for the leverage, always look for the leverage. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the greatest takeaway, I think, from everything you've talked about in your, your diverse journey. And by the way, I finally met someone with the, with the more diverse background than me. <laughs> you throw in the accounting degree and these other things you were talking about. And I've, I've met somebody who's more educated than I am. So <laughs> glad to know you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's really cool. So yeah, let's, I'd love to dig in deeper to what you were talking about with the whole leveraged buyouts and you know, using the company to pay for itself. And you were, you were saying how you noticed nothing down in real estate and how you could, you know, get like a land contract or something where the property owner would, you know, be the one doing, doing the financing and that you wondered if that could be applied to leveraged buyouts. You know, can you tell us just, you know, really quickly, what does that look like to, you know, how, is that a good way that somebody who's a six figure company or a seven figure company can take advantage of, or is there a certain size where that would make sense to consider, you know, growth for acquisition purposes, you know, bringing on another company in order to grow? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I think that it really works for, for any size company. It's just, it might affect the size, you know, your, your capital that you have available and the size of the company you have might affect the company size of what you're going to buy. But I can't think of any faster way to grow. Like if you've got a business with a thousand people who are customers and I've got a business with a thousand people who are customers and our goal is to get to 2000, I can do it tomorrow if I acquire another company that's got a thousand customers. And it's, it's going to be really hard for you to do that organically or through paid media or any other way. So it's, it's because those customers already exist. So there are lots of ways to grow. And I, I really like to look at it as there are seven major categories when you're thinking about acquisitions. You can acquire your competitors. That's the first one and, and the most common. But you can also acquire media. And media can be a company that has a bunch of things that aggregate the eyeballs of your potential customers. Or it can be as simple as just a single asset like a YouTube channel or an Instagram account or a blog or something like that. And so if I buy a blog or an Instagram channel or a Facebook group or something like that or a podcast, then I instantly own the audience and the audience can be directed wherever I want them. And so I can start directing them towards my products and services and then I can seed the media in ways that would cause the people to want to come and buy my products and services. And then the third way would be that to acquire for talent or team or other resources. So for example, in the past, we've acquired companies that already had a sales rep network because we didn't have a a huge rep network of people to sell stuff. So we bought a company that had those people already in place. So we didn't have to build it for digital marketer. Not long ago, we bought a company that had a software development team because we did not have one. 
And so when we bought that company, we instantly had a complete functioning, working uh, software development team able to do new products for us. The next one would be, actually the next two would be products and services. So looking to companies that have services that either your customers are buying and subscribing to or that you are and companies that have products that your customers are, are purchasing currently or that you are. And then the next type would be vertical integration, which would mean anybody who is supplying you, whether they're supplying you with content or products or services or anything like that to consolidate the margins that are in the supply chain from wherever you're getting the things that you're selling. And then down the line vertically would be acquiring distribution channels. So if your things are being sold on websites, acquiring those websites, if your things are being sold in retail stores, acquiring those stores, that kind of thing. And then last but not least, the seventh one would be acquiring intellectual property. And that would mean patents, trademarks, copyrights, customer lists, trade dress, any of those kinds of things that are intellectual property. Uh, it could be courses. It could be anything that, that you might add as a product or, or service to sell that's been protected somehow. So I think if you think about no matter what size you are, you can always acquire competitors that have more customers. You can always acquire media or teams or resources or products or services or people up and down the supply and distribution chain or intellectual property. And, and it will only always help you get bigger, help you get more customers, help improve your top line and your, and your profit. Yeah. So then back to the whole point of leverage, um, and thank you for sharing those seven different ways that you can grow. So in terms of this whole growth hack and looking for leverage, so if you're looking to grow faster and you're, you're, so you're, and so you could be like, all right, I can go get more customers. I can, you know, all the normal things, but your point is, okay, what's the way I could get there even faster through acquiring one of these other seven assets to get me there even faster because my competitor already has the eyeballs. This media channel already has the eyeballs, you know, the rest of the supply chain, if I were acquire that other company, I could get there even faster. So like, is this something that's doable for the, you know, the, I know you mentioned that the, it's really just a matter of the size of how much they would have to invest, but is it really practical? Like how small of a company could really do this? I know you said as long as you can afford it, you're, there's really no limit to how you could do it. Well, any, anybody can. And, and I go through, I've got 27 different ways that I use to acquire companies with no money down. Cause I, I started, as I mentioned, doing that with real estate. And then over the years, as I bought more and more companies, I was like, you know, well, I wonder if I can do this with, with companies. And it was like, yes, I can. And then, you know, you start with something simple like an owner carry back where the owner is, is carrying back money. And then maybe you go to earnouts after that where you, you're, you're not paying up front, but you're paying based on the performance of the company in the future. Then you start doing sweat equity where maybe you're providing services and acquiring interests in companies or companies. Then you get into things like swaps and asset-based lending and slips and things like that where you're using the company to pay for itself. And then, you know, how can, I, how can you go out and get additional funding and financing from alternative lending sources to, to layer over that. Um, and then there are companies like Lighter and um, that do uh, revenue-based financing deals. You can do merchant accounts to fund based on merchant account processing history of the company. So there's all these really cool things, you know, all the way up to where you're super stacking, like you're saying, I'm going to do an SBA 7A loan and I'm going to combine that with an owner carry plus credit card advance and so on and so forth. And it's really fun to just think about all the different things that you can do 
to acquire companies. So you're, when I was talking about size, I wasn't really talking about a capital constraint as much as like it might be really hard for you if you've got a thousand customers in your e-com store right now that are buying your widget to add 17,000 new customers by acquiring something and not really understanding how to run that company. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. And even for listeners who are like, you know, I don't really want to do this whole, you know, merging or acquiring other companies thing because it sounds, you know, complicated or, you know, even though it doesn't have to be, it could be simple. The whole point of what I'm hearing you say is that always be looking for the leverage point. You know, what's a faster way to get there? And that actually ties into my whole, you know, work, grow by, by subtraction, grow by working less instead of work, you know, work smarter, not harder. Do you agree with yeah. that idea, work smarter, not harder? Oh, 100%. I think hard work is uh, the, the fact that we grow up being told that, that if you work harder, you'll be successful, I think is it causes us to shortchange ourselves by skipping over the step of what if I, what if I work hard at working smarter? Then you go for that leverage. And even if you don't want to acquire all the things that we were talking about in terms of those seven areas or categories of companies that you might think about acquiring, you can simply change the word acquire and swap it out for strategic partnership. And you've got all of those as companies that you don't even have to acquire. They're just companies that you can form a relationship with that is deeper than a one-time deal, which is what we call a JV or joint venture, to have a strategic ongoing partnership so that there's a mutually beneficial relationship between you and those types of categories of companies. Right. Yeah, that's a great clarification. So even if somebody doesn't want to dip their toes into the actual acquisition of it, there are still ways that you can you know, build the strategic partnerships with those companies to still get there faster. So yep. what do you say to the person? Because I get this a lot when I'm out here, you know, teaching the idea of how I stumbled onto the secret to growth and happiness is actually do less, not more, but you got to do it strategically and you got to do the right things. What do you say if somebody's in, they're in growth mode and they say, Roland, I can't slow down. I can't, you know, work, work less and, and think more strategically. I don't have time for that. I'm in growth mode. Like what's, what's your answer to that? Well, I, th- I think you just have to, if it's, I don't have any time, then that's an assumption that you have to address and say, okay, well, the, the first assumption by you not having any time is that you're, you're completely filled on your calendar with important things that cannot be rearranged or done more efficiently or effectively uh, or switched around in some sort of way to make space to do more high-level, high-value things. And so then you're just going to get like, if you get somebody like that, you just say, okay, well, let's, let's chart out what you do for the next 30 days hour by hour and see if you truly don't have any time or if you're busy doing busy work that isn't really advancing you. Because every productivity study that I've ever seen shows that the average top level executive only spends about 60 to 120 minutes a day of actual productive time. And so I think that that conscious incompetence level is very important to get to that right now, many of us are completely inefficiently managing our time. And if, if that's a belief that you have, then you have to go and address that belief and, and you have to fix that and say, okay, you know, are you managing your time in the best way? Well, yes, I am because I'm busy all the time and I'm growing. Okay, great. Let's chart it all out for 30 days. Let's see what you are doing that's actually contributing to growth and what you are doing that could be delegated to someone else or that maybe isn't contributing in a way that is valuable enough to occupy that slot in your schedule. And then let's see where the gaps are that we can open up there. Now we get past that assumption and we've changed the paradigm from I'm totally full, I'm obsessed with growth and all of my time is consumed doing that to, okay, I'm spending 
50% of my time, or let's be super generous and say 70% of my time on things that are high value, high level growth, high leverage growth activities. Now you've opened up 30%. Now we can start saying, okay, how do we slot high leverage activities into the gaps that we've created in your schedule? And how do we delegate some of the things that maybe other people can do? And that could be through an employee, through employing somebody, or if you don't have money to do that, it could be contracting with somebody as needed. Or if you don't have the money to do that, it could be partnering with somebody who has the skill set that you find isn't really your superpower that maybe could be performed by somebody else that would allow you to spend more time on the growth activities. So that's the kind of the first part is getting past the underlying assumptions and beliefs that you don't have any time, proving that you do, opening up your schedule so that you do, using delegation, contracting and partnership and hiring to move off the things that aren't your superpower, focusing now on your superpower, and then we get to what are the 14 or 18 or so high leverage activities that you could be doing and how do we start scheduling those in systematically and methodically and specifically to accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. Yeah, thank you for that. That's exactly what I ended up having to do in order to go from being the workaholic entrepreneur that was working 80 hours a week running my three companies and you know, that figuring out how to do it in three, working in the company's three. And it's, it, it involved literally everything you just talked about. That was a great summary. And then also, of course, policies and procedures. And, you know, you talked about delegation, but, you know, making sure that things were documented well so that my team could think like Denise or or think like the team member who, or the, the company's way of doing things. And, you know, like, it's so important, but you're right. Like so many entrepreneurs that I hear that from, they're stuck in this habit of working all the time whether or not the work is actually producing results or not. So I appreciated the way you, you know, walked through te- testing that assumption to make sure that is it even really true or not? Because if, exactly. it's, if, if it's not true, you know, like sometimes it is, but nine out of 10 times I've found in talking with other entrepreneurs that it's just, they're telling themselves. It was what I was always telling myself my whole life until I, I had a little scheduling experiment that made me realize that working smarter was way better than working harder. And speaking of working smarter versus harder, I mean, you're a guy who who invests in over, or you're an advisor to over 150 companies, and you own maybe what a dozen or so of your own companies. 36. So clearly, you know a little thing or two about managing your time. What are a couple of the your favorite time management strategies or time hacks that you personally use to keep track of your 150 clients that you're advisors to, as well as your 36 companies that you own? What are your top two? or three favorite time hacks? Well, the, I mean, the first is don't be on the org chart of any of your companies. So that's probably my biggest time hack is that if you're on the organizational chart of a company, you have a job description, which means you have a job. And I, I don't want a job. I, I want to be doing the thing that I'm best at. And what I'm best at is the strategy and execution of the strategy at the high level, setting the vision for the companies. And then there are project-oriented things that I can do well at, like funding, financing, negotiating and cutting deals, strategic relationships, that sort of stuff. But that's not something that I want to do as a job. So all of the actual jobs that are on the organizational chart belong to people other than me. And that's something that's been very important in allowing me to have the time to do the things that I do. I think, I think that's probably the number one hack of all hacks for, for that. Then beyond that, it's it's just being willing to to trust the people that you have hired to do the work that you've hired them to do. And I'm a very hands-off manager. 
So the only thing I get is I get a dashboard that shows me the important key performance indicators or KPIs in each of those companies. And if I see something changing, then I'll be able to go in and talk to the person who's responsible for managing that and say, hey, what's going on? But I'm otherwise completely hands-off on those deals. So I'd say those are my, my top two time hacks. Gotcha. Well, and how do you, how do you look at, at time? Is it a commodity to you? Like, how do you, how do you wrap your, like me, I I look at, I used to look at time as something that, you know, oh, I would have to wrap my, my personal life around my, my work schedule. And then, you know, I finally flipped it to where my, my priorities were, I, I plan my life first, and then my work comes around it. You know, with, with, with what you were talking about, about not being on the org, org chart of any of your companies, does that make it a lot easier for you to have the attitude I was talking about with, you know, my life comes first and then I wrap my businesses around it? It does. Uh, I, I believe that time is our most precious asset that we have. So I think it's important to treat it with the utmost care, which means protect it and, and save as much of it, conserve as much of it as possible. And so I look for ways to do that in everything in my business life to do the things that mean the most to me. Now, I will tell you that I am absolutely madly passionate about business. I just love it. So if I had to go and work a job at Walmart greeting people so that I could do business on the side for free, I would do it. <laughs> so so it, it is something that's very important to me, but so is personal fulfillment. So is family and I'll separate that down to my relationship with my wife and then the relationship with the kids and then the relationship with the other people around and then friends. So those, those things all are high priority items for me. So I think it's making time, being sure that you are available and present and here in the now to, to enjoy the things that you're doing by organizing the rest of your life, especially business and social media and all that. It's like, if the phone rings, I don't, I don't have to answer it. I don't feel I have to answer it. If the phone vibrates in my pocket, I don't feel a need to pull it out. I can be having dinner and the phone across the way might light up and my wife will say, oh, somebody's calling. And I'm like, ah, yeah, that's cool. But we're here now. This is what we're doing. So I do not allow any part of my life to interfere with any other part of my life. And if there's an emergency, then the good news is that because I have enough time to spend on each area of my life, I can uh, the other areas of my life, whether it be family or work, generally understand that this is what's important right now. I'm going to take care of this thing. And uh, that seems to work for me. Sure. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, there are times when, you know, you are going to spend more time on one than another, but in general, by having plenty of time for your yourself and your family, that's what the priority normally is. And if you need to shift it around, like you have an emergency at the office, you can handle it, but you give you give that time back to yourself later, I assume. Exactly. And that's what I do. It's a give and take. And like, you know, I love the fact that I've got so much flexibility in my schedule that I can decide spur of the moment to go see a friend who's really ill or to go to an event that I hadn't planned on, but somebody just invited me to come as their guest and it sounds like fun and I want to do it. Like I've got enough time in my schedule every single week. I can do that. I can say yes to those opportunities that make me happy or that allow me to add value to others. And that, that I think was the great shift for me in going from the workaholic entrepreneur who was feeling like I was lost and overworked and was I really doing anything valuable in the world to, you know, feeling like I can make a difference and working half as much and getting just as much done, but more importantly, having time for what really matters. Do do you agree with that or do you, do you have a different take? No, a thousand percent. I agree a thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, you just blow me away, Roland. I don't even know how you can keep track of the emails and the 
the, um, you know, the different companies? Like, how do you even remember, like, what hat am I wearing in this company versus what hat am I wearing in this? That just, just even thinking about it, make, you must have some really killer strategies for keeping track of all that than what we would even have time to go in here today. Cause it makes my head spin just thinking about it, <laughs> how you keep track of all that. <laughs> it's definitely fun. I, I can imagine, but you love it though. I know you do. I, I, do. I know how much you, you geek out on this kind of stuff. Absolutely. But speaking of email, do you ever have inbox zero? No, I don't care about inbox zero. I think that's a, <laughs> I think you're crazy if you're trying to have inbox zero. I, I only, if I, let me go look right. I, uh, I only care about the things that matter right now. So I have 42,478 unopened messages in one Gmail account, 9,976 in another, so on and so forth. I don't care about anything except the important. I don't waste my time opening it, and I sure as hell don't waste my time deleting it because I'd be deleting all day long. I could spend an hour a day just deleting emails. So I think it's... I'm comfortable with all of that other stuff going on without me paying any attention to it at all. Yeah, that's so true. Your your inbox sounds like mine. And I actually just finally a few years ago, it was very freeing. I gave myself permission to just let it go and say, you know what? I don't want to worry about inbox zero. It, d- email is a database of information I go to when a client and I or a vendor and I have d- agreed there's something there I need to go look at. Like, I'm not going to let it control me. It's just a database of information that I get to when it's time for me to get to it. So it sounds like you share a similar view. <laughs> I do. And I, I feel that way about, uh, about all the socials as well. I, 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 don't, I don't read any email that I am not expecting to come in. And frequently, I'll tell people to text me if they're sending me an email that I know like they're going to send an agreement or something. I say, text me when you send it. And then I'll go look at it so, because I might not look at it for several days. and the same is true with social. I, I don't have any need or desire to look at social. I, I look at social simply as a way to connect with the, with my world. And my world is my friends and acquaintances and also my business interests. And so I have someone who does, who I, like I'll create content and then I have somebody who is constantly pushing out the content. And so you might not see something that I write now for you know, 90 days or a podcast that I record for four months, but it will be in the mix. And I have a podcast person that does all of that. I've got a YouTube person that's doing all the YouTube stuff. I have a, another content person that's doing all of the Instagrams and all that. And I'm like, with the exception of the things that I enjoy creating, like I, I will write kind of detailed posts and I really enjoy doing that. Cause I like to write. I like, I feel like it's a creative thing, even though it's business. But all of the stuff that you see from me on social is going out as a result of a process that's been put in place. And then if I feel like I should respond to things, uh, what I'll do is, like, I never look at the feed for anything. So I'm never looking at any feed at all. I only go to the notifications. And then the notifications, I skip everything except comments. And then I do respond personally to comments during downtime. And downtime might mean, I'm waiting in line at the store or the bank or I, you know, I'm traveling and flying on a plane or something like that where there's really nothing else for me to do. And I find it very easy to keep up with even thousands of comments a day across all the different social media accounts by doing that. So all I'm doing is content is taken care of. I create it once it goes out in a million places. The feeds, I ignore the notifications. I ignore except for 
the things that indicate that someone's interacting with me who's taken the time to comment. And I'm in the process of getting rid of all of that except because there's a lot of things that you just say thank you to or something like that. So I'm in the process of getting rid of all of that except the things that require thoughtful engagement. So that's my next level of stepping back from having to be involved with that. But I don't let any of that stuff run my life at all. So I, I think you've got to say, I am the boss of all this stuff and all of this stuff only exists to serve me. And I'm not there to get popular or, or see myself and create this fake image of who I would like to be or who I'd like to see myself as or who I hope other people would see me as. I'm there to share information that helps people and at the same time drives business and interact with the people to help them along the path of interacting with that content and driving business. And other than that, I, I, could, I, I wouldn't have social at all. Gotcha. No, thank you for sharing that. That's a really great you know, way of putting it. And as somebody who has like a million followers, you know, that's a really powerful strategy that if you, if you can make that work with over a million followers, then that's imp- really impressive. So you clearly have it dialed in and being productive with it. Working so far. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> you know, and I, I know we've talked about business and your business hacks and your time hacks. If you just had one travel hack, I mean, you're like, you travel all the time. I, I've always, you know, I know we've chatted before about your hotel room upgrade strategy and some other really cool, you know, airline upgrade strategy and other cool things you do. If you only had one that you could, you know, quickly share, because I know we're almost out of time here. What's your favorite travel hack that you could share with listeners? I'll share one that I haven't ever shared before that I have used for years and years and years, ever since I was very first traveling and pre-internet, but I still use it. And it's amazing to me how people don't think about this. But when you travel a lot, you note that, that things happen that create cancellations and, and things like that. Airports close because of snow and ice and uh, flights get canceled. And people don't really know what to do proactively about that. And to me, I remember the very first time that I had a flight canceled. I had a cell phone because cell phones were around, but the internet was not. And I was at the airport in Richmond, Virginia, and the flight got canceled. And I watched all of the people run from, this was back in the day where, well, that airport was very small too, but um, back in the day where you didn't have all the security that you have now and, and whatnot. But anyway, I watched everybody running when the flight was canceled, they announced it to the desk to get their flights changed. And I just called. It occurred to me, call the 800 number for the airline and skip the line because I'll be able to get a reservation agent. And while all those other people are waiting in line and they're only helping the one person in front, I'll be able to make my change before all those people get to it. Whereas if I was to jump in the back of that line, there'd be 26 people in front of me before I was able to get my reservation and my chance would be, you know, one twenty-sixth of what it was going in because they all obviously wanted to go to the same place. So I still do that. Only now I do it online. And I remember not long ago we were in London and the, uh, we were at Heathrow about to fly out and it started snowing. And so the things I know is like, okay, Heathrow is very, very snow sensitive. So I just call, I, I just went online actually and made a reservation at a hotel that I like before everybody else got their bags and started trying to get into hotels and things because the hotels will fill up quickly, especially the nice ones. And then I rebooked my flight the same night 
uh, you know, at the same time and then got my luggage and left. And I left the airport while everybody was camping out at the airport. I went to a nice hotel. The airport was closed for a few days. There were news articles and uh, news shows about all the people in the airport and the food was running low and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and there, you know, people sleeping in sleeping bags and stretched out on the floor. And we're in our nice, beautiful five-star hotel room, enjoying room service and afternoon tea, watching this stuff on the news, thinking, this is crazy. Why would you stay at the airport when you know it's going to be closed for a couple of days? And why would you, and you know, even if you don't have any money, you can find a, a room for as little as maybe 20 pounds a night outside. And you skip all the challenges, you know, don't put yourself in the way of all of the challenges, get out of there and reschedule. Because if I do that right now, I can get the room while it's still available. I can cut to the front of the line on reservations because I'm doing it before everybody else is doing it. So that'd be my major life and travel hack is whenever anything is, and I'll, I'll extend that and then I'll shut up. But like, I live in an area where there are California wildfires. They're actually going on right now. Last week, we had our power out six days out of 14 because they were preemptively cutting it off so there wouldn't be sparks if, uh, if trees blew onto power lines. And when I, when I hear the power's going to go out, I just go to a place where it's on. When I hear there's, uh, there's something bad that's, uh, that's going on or there's a tornado approaching or you know maybe there's a tsunami aftershock or something like that that's going to happen, then I just leave. And I think so many people just stay to stick out that stuff. And then you put yourself in danger and jeopardy and you put yourself into large crowds of people that are panicked. And just throughout my entire travel and life experience generally, anytime you see that something's happening, take action immediately. Don't wait to be part of the 100,000 people they're evacuating from the city of Calistoga, you know, or, or because of the fire is there. Be the person that says, hey, there's a fire that might come here. There's a 22% chance that the fire might come here. Why don't I just find a way to get out of town so that I'm not going to even have to deal with that if it happens? So my, my thing is just anytime you see any challenge, travel-wise or otherwise, then take alternative action that puts you out of the path of whatever hassle is going to come, and you'll be so much happier. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, Be the person who avoids the drama or the hassle. And it's a lot more fun and adventurous that way too. <laughs> so it is kind of fun, yeah. right? Yeah, you're more like me. Not everybody's a, as adventurous as we are, but I, I'm all about avoiding the drama and the hassle. The, the funny thing to me is, especially watching people in airports, like watching news, and as people that they've been in the airport for six days now because of snow and food is running low. And it's like, but in the city, 15 miles away, none of that is the case. Right. <laughs> Why are you going to fight over the crusty three day old Starbucks muffin that's left? when you could just be in a place not dealing with that. I don't get it. No, I, and everything you're saying really all ties together nicely. It's a beautiful way to wrap this up, which is, you know, like living life in a way where you plan your your business around your life, but you're still passionate about business, obviously, in order to run, you know, 38 company or 36 companies and be a, a, an advisor to 150. You clearly know a little something about that. But you've, you've got this laid back approach of just looking at it as fun and enjoying it and removing yourself from the, the bottleneck of any kind of equation. I, I really love everything you talked about. And if listeners want to get more info about War Room or your podcast, can you tell us where they could go to get more information about that? Absolutely. Our mastermind is at warroommastermind.com. 
And I have all, all of the links to everything I do are on my site, rolandfraser.com, R-O-L-A-N-D-F-R-A-S-I-E-R. And then I have a podcast as well called Business Lunch, where I interview smart people like you and, uh, and talk about leverage and growth and things like that. Cool. Well, Roland, I really appreciate you joining me today. It's been a great conversation. And don't worry, listeners, everything that we've talked about today uh, will be included in the show notes in terms of the links that we talked about, a summary of some of the key ideas that Roland talked about. So make sure you check out those show notes on the vacationeffect.com website under the podcast. And thanks for listening. And remember, freedom is a mindset, not a destination. Thanks so much for listening. For more information about The Vacation Effect or for details on today's show, head over to our website at vacationeffect.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.